Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact around our country. I'm Dr. Karen Rimley, a pediatric physician leader and the former health commissioner of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm joined by three women leaders in the world of healthcare and public health. Dr. Sherry Barkin is the chief of general pediatrics at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. She's also a very well-respected community researcher. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. I'm also joined by Dr. Jewel Mullen, the Associate Dean for Health Equity at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin, and also a previous state health official in Connecticut. Thanks for being here, Jewel. Thank you, Karen. Finally, I'm joined by Rachel Davis, the Executive Director of the National Public Health Nonprofit Prevention Institute. Rachel is based in Oakland, California, and is hosting our podcast. Welcome, Rachel, and thank you. Thank you, Karen, and let me also just take this opportunity to thank Jewel and Sherry as well. This is such a fast-moving, dynamic situation that's so nuanced and complex, and it feels really important to take this time to have a deeper conversation about what this means for health and public health. Let's start with a question for Sherry. Since you're really right now on the front lines taking care of um, patients at the Children's Hospital in Nashville, tell us what the situation is looking like in your hospital right now and what's on your mind as a clinician, as a parent, and as a leader in your institution as you're responding day-to-day to this crisis. Well, what's really important is that this is our typical respiratory season. So we continue to see typical respiratory problems. We are seeing still quite a lot of flu. We're seeing adenovirus. We're seeing strep pharyngitis and many other very, very common viruses that present with fever and cough. And, of course, that then leads us with additional challenges because as we are beginning to screen and look for symptomatic cases of COVID-19, many of the symptoms are the same fever and cough, which is our most common complex of symptoms that we see this time of year. So I like to stay really grounded. We recognize from the emerging data that we have from around the world that most people who are getting COVID-19 have mild or moderate symptoms and they recover fully. So getting really clear about what the data tell us now. The good news for children is typically they do well. And of course, our job as pediatricians is to be ever vigilant and take care of those children that are medically fragile and have a higher risk that if they were to contract COVID-19, they might not do quite as well. I think the most important message from the front lines in clinic or in the inpatient setting is that we are learning together as we go. We're going to turn to Jewel. Now, you're um, in an academic setting at the medical school in Austin, Texas. What's the mood and what's happening there? Your faculty, your students, how are they looking at what this may do, both on a national level and a state level, but also within their own institution for this pandemic? What I would start with is 
something similar to what Shari just mentioned, which is that a lot of the conversation has understandably been the conversation of healthcare providers who have been really trying to ramp up and consider whether or not they are adequately prepared from a healthcare delivery standpoint, not just to respond as we start to see our first cases of COVID-19 in Austin, but to also anticipate what that looks like in the event of a surge. Because Bell Medical School is relatively new and because we don't have our own hospital, we are affiliated with um, the Ascension system here in Central Texas. It also calls for our faculty to, I think, do um, a, a bit of accelerated learning in what hospital preparedness that works across the academic faculty, the hospital leadership, and local public health really requires. It's always fun to be in an academic environment where we see how quickly students want to know how they can contribute. So those are the pieces that I'm seeing come together in largely a clinical response. As a public health leader who happens to be a doctor, I also get to observe the relative unease or disorientation caused for many of us who are not very comfortable having to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. We probably all know and have been the people who have said, that's not evidence-based. Give us the evidence. And this scenario we're in right now is another example of how important it is to be able to trust the interworkings of our health system and governmental public health when we really are not going to know the evidence in many ways until after the event is over. Rachel, you work in the world of public health and in your title, prevention. As you think from your particular perspective, how are you thinking about communities and the organizations you work with and what is their roles and your role as an organization during this epidemic? The starting point for me really is just observing that health is the foundation of everything we do. Good health is the foundation of what we're able to do. And right now what we see is the threat of this pandemic is really hampering social, economic, and educational opportunities because without health we can't take advantage of any of those things. And those things in turn support good health, and we know that those opportunities to be healthy just are not distributed equally. We have a big role to play in really insisting that we address this pandemic with equity at the core of what we're doing. The other thing that we're recognizing in this pandemic, and it reminds us that all of our health is inherently interdependent on the health of others. Another thing we've been really thinking about is that what we really understand from our work in community, whether it's been on addressing opioid misuse and the opioid epidemic or mental health and suicide prevention or violence prevention, is that 
feeling connected and being connected is a really important part of health and safety and well-being. It's really important for people to not feel isolated, and that can particularly be true in a time of crisis, and yet here we are recommending social distancing. And so how can we, in the context of social distancing being important to slow the spread of the virus, how can we also make sure that people don't feel isolated, that people feel connected, and that we're reaching out and keeping communities connected and cohesive through really this very challenging, confusing, frightening time? Sherry, I'm listening to Rachel, and I'm thinking, you know, a lot of your work and research is in communities and working at the community level with different groups. And Rachel just really talked about how intimately interwoven health, economics, education, well-being are. How do you see that in your community, and, and what are your particular things you're either focusing on or really worried about? The first thing is that it's interesting to me that we use the term social distancing because we actually mean physical distancing. That's really different than social distancing. I think people often, when they hear social distancing, are envisioning social isolation or social disconnection. And I think it's up to us to make sure that that is not what we intend, nor is that what we implement. Physical distancing still allows us to care for our neighbors and care for our communities. We just need to be intentional about how we do it so that we can decrease any unnecessary transmission of any of the viruses that we've just named that are common at this time of year. So what I see in the community is that we are very attentive and trying to do the right thing for our neighbor through this physical distancing. And at the same time, because in Nashville we recently were hit by four tornadoes, we are striving to help our neighbors with relief. And to provide that relief means we need to work within agencies in creative, consistent ways to make sure that people are getting what they need. They need access to healthy food. They need a sense of compassion and a feeling of community and support. And these things can be provided in many ways. Not only can we still come together in smaller groups with attention to physical distancing as we are helping provide what our communities need, but we can intentionally reach out to those who need us. With my work, I work with Parks and Recreation and the library, as well as many other common community infrastructures. And they already have a natural reach into the community and in many ways are really important messengers during this period of time where we can pay attention to not only keeping each other healthy and well in terms of physical health, but also in terms of mental health and what it is to be human together during this time. Jewel, Rachel talked about having equity at the core. And, you know, some people talk about pandemics as being the great equalizer, but certainly it has brought forward a lot of our society's issues with inequities. How are you thinking about inequities, how they're coming up during this crisis, and help us understand what we can do to recognize that, but also be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, 
which you, you probably all know has um, one of the largest outbreaks of COVID-19 in the country. Um, my little suburb, lovely suburb of New York City, and I'll call it maybe the tale of two cities inside of a suburb, even when we talk about what one might be able to do with and for one's neighbors, because since stories about what's going on there, depending on what part of town you live in, which in many ways just scratch the surface of what social inequality looks like and what happens in a person's daily life that makes it harder to be resilient at a time like this. So I've been able to read stories that articulate the concerns of families who want to make sure their kids are going to graduate on time and keep up with their AP classes and, you know, come and go, families that can still come and go within a containment zone to be able to get their basic needs at the same time that the, the governor of New York called in the National Guard to make sure that children in another part of the suburb were going to be able to access meals that are customarily provided through the school's breakfast and lunch programs now that the schools are closed. And so the concept of neighbors, even in a community, can remind us that who we know oftentimes are the neighbors who, whose lives are just like our lives. And that makes it sometimes extra hard for us to remember the extent to which we really need to focus on the social inequality that underlies people's inability to maintain health and then withstand a, a, a disease like COVID. And that makes it hard on a daily basis just to get through the days. Some of the students at the university expressed surprise, for example, to hear a statistic such as half of the uninsured adults don't have a doctor to call in the event that they were to reach out to in the event that they're sick. So this pandemic is a time for us to put real meaning to social determinants of health and health-related social needs. For many of us who in our work and in our education have taught about them as concepts, which are really now becoming real as we look at what people are having to contend with. This is Rachel. I just want to add on to what Jewel's saying because it's so important. We did not arrive at this point by accident. The fact that there are these um, social inequities in our society have been the longstanding result of policies and practices by government and and the non-governmental sectors that have really created these inequities and opportunity. And we need to correct that. And I think this pandemic is really bringing those to light in a way others may not have seen before. What we are seeing is, for example, some sports teams, some of the athletes are committing to paying salary of some of the folks who work in stadiums, which is important for the individual's lives. And we're starting to see local governments like San Francisco today in announcing a stay-in-place order started talking about the policies they were going to put in place so that families were better equipped to meet basic needs 
And we need the same kind of response from the federal government to be addressing those conditions that are going to interfere with people being able to be healthy and meet basic needs. This is Sheila again, just building on Rachel's comment. I would like to share that having, you know, having been a commissioner in Connecticut and now being a professor in Texas, having worked at the federal level through the end of the last administration into the beginning of this one, what we're talking about didn't just start 10 years ago. So just the inequalities and the inequities that we're talking about are so encased in the systems and policies that we are expecting people to thrive in when instead an increasing number of humanity is just subsisting. So as we continue to have these conversations, we don't need to shy away from thinking about that um, they are third rail discussions or will turn anybody into a lightning rod. If we really try to understand their origins and are intentional about saying we want something different for humanity. As I was listening to you, I was reflecting on my time as um, Virginia's health commissioner and the public health system and how it too has historically dealt with first creating inequities and then trying to undo and fix and put equity at the center of everything health departments do. I think about though, at the same time, our public health infrastructure over the last 20 years has been significantly defunded. It gets a few peaks here and there when there's an outbreak or a crisis, but quickly comes down again. We're depending on them as sort of the backbone of this response in terms of trying to do, as we've all talked about, flattening that curve, educating the community, making sure the community understands the difference between physical distancing and social distancing, as Sherry said. And it is really those professionals' responsibility to do this. I'm happy to hear you all talk about, uh, I think, Rachel, you talked about in San Francisco how other entities are embracing this responsibility and sharing that with public health, whether it be the economy, um, the work that has to be done to have people that can't work, don't have jobs, kids in school, what are all the other components that come together. But Rachel, you're in, in California, which is one of the hotbeds. Do you feel like your public health departments, I know they're probably working um, incredibly hard, but do they feel like they have the resources and they're able to do what's needed to be done? Well, as you have just said, public health is really on the front line of this in the wake of decades of underinvestment. And yet they're really on the front line of science and service to health. And so they're doing everything they can for sure. And in calling these emergencies, that gives them the legal power to bring in other agencies and entities as well. But I think it's bringing up the big crack in our health system, including that we've underinvested in public health for far too long. The funny thing about public health is that when it really works, it's invisible because we don't even know all the things that are going on. And it takes something like a pandemic to understand the really critical role that public health plays in ensuring healthy communities and in healthy lives. 
Jewel, you were you mentioned you were also the principal deputy at Secretary of Health at HHS during the Obama administration and transitioned over with the current administration. Give us your insights on how the federal government is responding, what else should we expect to be happening, and just any insights you might have. It's hard to watch the news every day and hear something new and different. You feel like a bouncing ball, but give us your perspective on that. Last week, I told some of my colleagues, pause before they decide to judge because they never know everything that's happening on the inside. So I think I'm going to answer that question by just telling you what I long for rather than telling you my assessment of what I observe. Here's what I long for. I'll start with this. Somebody asked me a couple of months ago what the public needs to do. Um, to really participate in surviving a public health crisis, like a pandemic. And my response was, I know you might not want to hear this, but I think it's really important for people to trust government. Now, there might be people who are laughing at me right now for suggesting that that's important. But I also think that right now we have reminders of how important it is for people to be able to trust their leaders. So I long for the voices of the colleagues I know who are still working so hard on behalf of all of us nationally and globally to make this be a pandemic that is shorter rather than longer. And we're not hearing from all of them. We're not seeing all of them. And because of that, we're not benefiting from the reassurance of their knowledge, their dedication, and their primary focus on population health and well-being and equity. So I will start there. The second thing that I've experienced and worked through that I long for is the reassurance that government actions, state, local, and federal, are coordinated through and through because that's how the system best works and can best collaborate with and support the healthcare and human service systems, which we still have not fully integrated into all that we do. And then the next thing that I long for is a stronger articulation of the true understanding of the needs of the most vulnerable members of our nation, our territory. Because when we talk in in big terms about what government is doing, we don't necessarily ask ourselves whether or not the interventions are going to have the impact for the communities that are most vulnerable and most likely to suffer the harshest medical and social impacts of the pandemic. Sherry or Rachel, I'll give you an opportunity to reflect on the comments that Jill just made. This is Rachel. I think it's really important particularly in a situation like this, for people to be able to trust their government. There's been a long history of people not being able to trust their government. And with mixed messages coming out, 
and inconsistent messages, the question about can people trust their government or not comes up even more. That said, I've been strongly encouraging folks we work with to be able to look to their local health department to get the kind of information they need that can help them be safe and keep their families safe and their community safe. And so I think it's an understandable mistrust. Sherry, did you have anything? I know that in the past we have great examples of being able to rise up to the challenge. A lot of it is rooted in this notion of coordination. And coordinating activities in a time of uncertainty feels like a Herculean task. Not to say that we aren't up for it. It means that people have to feel okay swimming in uncertainty and reaching out for each other to identify the best way to coordinate our actions so we can be most efficient and effective together. I know it's hard to think beyond this. And Jewel kind of gave us the things she longs for, but we're right in the middle of, and probably at the very beginning of what will be a a long and hopefully flattened curve. But let's think that we're now in 2021 and we've got a vaccine and the coronavirus pandemic is controlled. And we now have an opportunity and we have a lot of leaders on the state and local and federal level that are open to thinking about what should public health and healthcare systems look like? So that not only can we handle the next crisis, because there will be another crisis that comes our way, but we can make sure everybody has the opportunity for health and well-being and that the equity platform is foremost. Sherry, what are some of the things that you would want to put in place to create a better healthcare and public health infrastructure in the U.S.? First, I really appreciate that we have been talking about public health as the backbone. And so I'm thinking about this in terms of how how our backbone allows us to stand upright and move forward. And to do that well, we need to have a clear infrastructure that allows for a unified system so that we can collect data, monitor seasonal illnesses, alert those who are at highest risk with timely and accurate information, and think as a societal network rather than one component at a time. We would also, after we've been able to support our backbone, we would be able to have the appropriate use of data to then assess the effectiveness of our actions so that we can tailor what we do, recognizing that we will never have a one-size-fits-all approach when we're examining public health. We would also have the ability to model outbreaks and understand potential prevention and intervention at a societal level and to coordinate those efforts across multiple facets of our society. So that includes not only public health, but also economics, education, labor, and many other things that affect our full well-being as a society. If I had a magic wand, what I would do was I would focus our system so that it was less of a sick care system, although that's very important. So it's not that that would be left unattended, but instead we would enhance the healthcare part of our system. And that means actively keeping our populations healthy. Jewel, you've been listening. You're in an academic medical center along with having experience at all levels of public health. Other things you'd want us to think about next year when we're asked, what did we learn from this and where do we go? 
I'd like us to start with whether or not we're still acting as if this social and societal emergency is one that continues once the public health crisis is over. Because if we have these conversations in the course of a threat and then go back to business as usual, we haven't learned anything that's going to make us want to create a different system. I'd start there and then just say housing, education, transportation, living wage, and economic mobility for everyone uh, because they are all so fundamental to health and well-being. Um, and, and if we look at those as just essentials and not medicalize them, then perhaps we're creating a societal system that upholds health without all the interventions having to be traditional medical and public health ones. Um, then the other thing that I would add being in an academic institution is to make it non-negotiable that we educate the next generations of learners to really understand how fundamental it is. There shouldn't be any debate about um, effective curriculum for learning about social determinants of health, the impact of race and racism on health as students are moving forward. And, you know, it's interesting as we, as we step back into current day where we're starting to see our leaders have conversations about providing money directly to people um, that are impacted by coronavirus, um, talking about tax, you know, payroll tax, all kinds of different options that are out there that are being discussed in the halls of Congress right now, which is a positive thing to me because it says they're realizing the impact of this epidemic is, is much larger on societal structure than just that infectious disease. And if we can carry that message forward, that all elements of health and all elements of, of bad health impact are impacted by and are caused by many more things than our own personal health decisions. And I think, Rachel, I would turn that to you because I think that's an area that you are particularly um, leading the way in. What we really need is a system for prevention, health equity, and racial justice, which recognizes all of these multifaceted contributors to health and understand that even in the context of a pandemic, prevention matters. We know that people who are at most risk right now for adverse outcomes from exposure to COVID-19 are folks who are experiencing lung disease or heart disease or diabetes, and many of these conditions are preventable, and they're preventable through changing the kind of conditions we've been talking about. It's so important that we take what we're learning right now and build that system that really supports health and public health for the long term, and that we not wait for the next disease or pandemic or epidemic before we realize again how fundamentally important these conditions are for people to be healthy. I think it's been really enlightening for me to listen to all of you, and I hope everybody who is listening to this podcast is thinking about how important in this time where people are panicking in the news cycle is every two hours there's more information about cases here, cases there, deaths here, and different ways to treat things that this is all intimately connected to how we look at equity and how we look at health in our country and what we can do every day. Um, 
Rachel, do you have any words of hope or inspiration that you want to share with our listeners or just a last thought as we bring this conversation to a close? I think as a society, we've been divided across these two fronts that one front says you're on your own and the other front says we're in this together. And this is really a time for us to understand we really are in this together at the local level, regional, state, national, and even global. We really are in this together, and we can get through this together. Jewel, some last thoughts or comments from you? Yes. um, Actually, my first thought is I'm so grateful for the Prevention Institute. So thank you, Rachel. And, And even in doing this podcast, I'm wondering... I, who used to say I want to be a talking head, but I don't anymore, wonder how messages like this one can actually be leveraged by those who are in the 24-7 news cycle to help to build a different kind of momentum, taking, taking what we're talking about and moving it to a national agenda for action as opposed to a media moment for reaction in ways that might be important but not necessarily bring us a partner that could actually maybe assist with social change. So I'm just going to drop that there and think about it a little bit more. Sherry, um, we're going to give you the last opportunity, so I hope you've got an upbeat comment or another call to action for us. I, I think epidemics show us what it is to be human. and to reiterate what Rachel said, that it shows us that we're all connected. A virus doesn't care where we live or what job we have. And it also sheds light on the very clear understanding that public health is the bedrock of a healthy functioning society. So that not only do we need to take care of what is right in front of us, we have to learn from this time and plan forward together. I think also when I am listening to such smart, focused, informed women, it reminds me how important it is that during times like this, we need to be cool-headed. We need to make sure that we are conveying consistent messages and lifting people up so that we can effectively find our way forward together. I have to leave you all with a a last thought, a quote that I have on my wall at home by Bertrand Russell, which is a good life is based on knowledge and inspired by love. And I've heard from you that love of all, the love of community, the need for data, and how we can all go forward together as a society with this very important time, learn and grow from it. I want to thank everyone who's listening and a very special thanks to the DeBeaumont Foundation who brought Jewel, Sherry, and Rachel together, along with me through the Women of Impact program. And I hope everyone practices good hand washing, takes good care of yourselves during these difficult times, but also remembers to think about everyone else in your community and every little thing you do can make a difference. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast, Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention I-N-S-T.